The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Well, I do thank you for the cheese head. And I have really, truly enjoyed being with you all, excited by what's going on in Wisconsin, and just as I interact with you um, and see the, in, the energy, the excitement and passion that is reflected in, in your lives and in some of your ministries, it really is tremendously encouraging. Um, sometimes when I cross borders into different states with uh, the, this Michigan pedigree and Chicago connections, I'm never really quite sure what kind of receptions I'm going to get. They really do vary all over. And I almost always get razzed for the Chicago Bear thing, especially if I'm going to come north here. Nobody ever razzes me for being Chicago Cub. I mean, it's sort of like razzing a little leaguer or something like that. It's just not something you do, you know, uh, kind of thing. So I never worry about that at all. Sometimes the Michigan thing is uh, unpredictable. I shall say, and I think I've been a little scarred because um, of my first venture uh, across borders with my Michigan connections. It's when way back in 74, uh, four of us got tickets in Ann Arbor to the Michigan-Ohio State game in Columbus. And so the four of us drove down to Columbus for the, um, to the game. And we were warned, you know, drive slowly because they'll be looking for you. And so we took them at their word. The four of us were driving down to the game in Columbus. Uh, there, crossed over the, the border and, and this sort of thing. This is in the Shem Beckler, Woody Hayes era uh, kind of thing. So things were kind of at a height uh, at that point. And so we were driving down. We were just going to do 50 miles an hour, no more, all the way down because we, we had gotten the message. And sure enough, we were driving. We passed a speed trap, and there were 20 cars pulled over, and every one of them had a Michigan's license plate. Every one of them. So we're like, okay, go real slow. Let's take this easy kind of thing. People are whizzing past us, you know, and they're waving stuff at us and various finger formations and things of that nature that we were, we were getting. But we're going to take it slow. But sure enough, pulled us on over. Said we were doing 75. Uh, and we we're like protesting. And no, we are. And so finally he just says, well, listen, the cop says, just okay, tell you what, you can each pay me uh, 10 bucks. And uh, we'll settle this right now, or I'll take you into the station, and we'll settle it there. And we're like, you kidding me? You know, protesting this sort of thing. You can't do that. Okay, follow me in. It's like, oh, no, okay, no, okay. So we all forked over 10 bucks a piece, paid this guy off, uh, took down his badge number as if that did any good uh, kind of thing, and just drove on, our only hope being that uh, Michigan did the same thing. Uh, each year uh, to uh, to Ohio State. So we're all pretty well ticked off, and we get down to uh, the game, park the car, this sort of thing. We're walking to the stadium. I don't know how many of you know the layout there um, in Ohio State, but, you know, it's right, the stadium's right along the river uh, kind of thing, Olentangy River. And so we're walking there, getting ready to kind of cross the bridge, following the flood of, of people across. But then we realize this big commotion on the bridge uh, over going over um, the Olentangy, and as we got close, realized that it was a large number of students who had picked up and were carrying a Mercedes-Benz with Michigan license plates on it, carried it up onto the bridge, and threw it into the Olentangy River. At that point, we're like, okay, cover up. 
not interested in taking a bath, that sort of thing, and spent the rest of the day being properly heckled and this sort of thing. So now, as I cross borders, I'm just always kind of wondering what kind of, I know this isn't Camp Randall or anything here uh, today, but uh, nonetheless, I've appreciated uh, being with you guys, um, and just what a really gracious and warm spirit you have um, have welcomed me to be a part of what uh, is going on here this week. So now we're going to talk to for forbearance and forgiveness in relationships, which seems to fit here uh, just a little bit. And what we're going to talk about uh, is what does it actually look like when we are being transformed by the gospel? What is a portrait of what we will begin to look and act like if the gospel is taking root uh, in our lives. I love how Paul describes the gospel in Romans 1.16. He says, it is the power of God unto salvation. He is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. And as you read, especially in 1 Corinthians, you begin to see how often power is associated with the gospel this way. It is not just information. There is really a power to it to save lives, to forgive, and to transform. And the reason the gospel is power is because it isn't just information, it's Jesus. Jesus is the gospel himself, who he is and what he has done as well as what he proclaims. It's Jesus in our lives by the Holy Spirit who is at work in our lives, changing us and enabling us to experience the wonders of God's grace the wonders of God's love and everything that he has created us for and has now redeemed us to be in his son Jesus. And that's why it does make sense when he says anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And it's not just about religion. It's not about the formalities that we are so often attached to it. It's all about Jesus. It's about the power of the gospel. So what does this actually look like? Well, I think a good portrait is that passage that's printed for you there, Colossians 3, 12 through 17. And there are a number of texts could have chosen. You probably have, some of you have some of your favorites to look at. This is one of mine. Colossians 3, 12 through 17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we look to you and ask that you would open up our hearts to your word and pray that your word would accomplish its purposes it would find its mark and do that which you've intended it to do 
We would pray that as the rain and snow come down from heaven, we turn not thither. Without watering the earth, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall your word be that goes forth from your mouth. It will not return to you empty, but will accomplish that which you purpose. Prosper in the thing for which you sent it. And we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. The bottom line, I think, to all of these verses, I think it could be put this way. That what is to characterize us as people being impacted by the gospel is that we are increasingly and consistently treating others with the same grace that we have been treated. Loving others with the same love which we have been loved. I think it really just comes down to that. And that, to me, is the mark of someone who has been transformed by the gospel when you see that more and more and more. But for us to grasp hold of what it means for that to be happening, what this portrait comes from, we really have to understand, again, who we are and what we have in Christ. And virtually any text in the Scripture starts this way. It never, Paul just never just jumps into saying, okay, guys, start doing this, A, B, C, and D, or whatever it's going to be. It always starts with understanding who you are and what you have in Christ. And therefore, as a result, let it work itself out this way. Now conduct yourselves in this manner because of who you are and what you have, what Jesus has done in your life. And that's where we see it right off the bat in verse 12. He tells us three things that define who we are as God's people if you're a Christian. He says that you are chosen by God, that you are holy in God, and that you are beloved by God. And when you understand those three things to the degree that you understand those things, then the rest of it's going to start making sense and it's going to start following in your relationship. I mean, let's just look at those three words very briefly. Each one could be a message all by itself. So I'm just going to have to make a couple very general uh, comments here. Don't want to take it any further than that. But if you're a Christian, the first thing is, it is only because God has chosen you. If you're a Christian, it's not because you moved towards God. It's because God moved towards you. It's all about who, what he has done in your life, not what you have done in your life. Now, this is an amazing concept to talk about being chosen by God. It's something that I have always found a wonder, a mystery. I have yet to wrap my head around that other than just the obvious fact of what it says. That the only reason I'm even standing before you guys today or would call myself a believer or have experienced the things that I have is all because of what God has done in my life, not because of anything I have done. It's only because somewhere along the line, he chose me before the foundations of the earth even. And that's what the truth of the scripture states over and over again, Jesus and Places like John 15, 16, you did not choose me, I chose you, and so forth. John 6, no one can come unto me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John, you know, 4, uh, 56, or uh, 65, um, no one can come unto me unless granted him by the Father, and on and on. The point is, Salvation is by grace. Unmerited favor. Not something you can earn or deserve. 
It is not something that you have now because you're more worthy than the next guy, because you're better than the next guy, more moral than the next guy, more intelligent than the next guy, more religious than the next guy, or anything else. It's because God enabled you to hear the gospel, and that in hearing the gospel, he opened your heart to receive it. He opened your heart to understand it, to repent, and to believe to receive the Lord Jesus Christ. I've always loved a passage in Acts 13, 48, uh, where so many people are hearing the gospel being proclaimed at that point. Lots of people are, and they're receiving it gladly and this sort of thing. So a lot of people are responding positively. They're at least nodding their heads and saying, that sounds good. I, I'm kind of liking what I hear. And then it goes on in, in Acts 13, 48 to say, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How do you know if you're chosen? How do you know if you're one of those who have been appointed unto eternal life? When you believe. That's how you know. When you, you take this gospel, you hear it, and you embrace Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And that's a product of what God is doing in your heart, to open your heart to understand, repent, and believe. Why does he choose you? Why does he choose me to open our hearts to repent and believe? I don't know. Don't think I ever will. It's a wonder. I don't get it all the time. But it's a joy. And all we can do is give humble thanks to God. It's not something that generates pride. It's, it's no more than the leper uh, who cries out to God. But Christ is the one who ultimately came to him. Christ is the one who opened his heart to do this. He cries out to the Lord. He's got nothing going for himself. And all we can do is sit back and when we begin to see things like, you're where you are because of what I've done for you. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. I've made you alive. And there's only humility and gratitude. And just when we come together in worship now, there's a vibrancy to our worship because we're, we're beginning to understand that more and more. And that produces worship and thanksgiving and praise in our lives. But not only are we chosen, and we have to continue to try to wrap our heads around that one. I mean, that's a big one. But not only that, but if you're a Christian, you're now holy. That's stunning in itself. To call anything holy like that, to call you holy, is remarkable because only God is holy. And he's described as holy, holy, holy. Now, the word holy really just means set apart being something that is set apart for special use, or in this case, as set apart as belonging to God, or in God's case, God who is set apart from creation in, in every sense of the term. He's a creator, we're the, we're the creature. He is uh, transcendent, we are finite. He is all the things we are not. He is holy. He is set apart. It's just like the Sabbath day. Uh, to, we're supposed to keep it holy. Well, that just means the Sabbath day is to be set apart as distinct from all the rest of the days, uh, for unique purposes uh, there. That's what it means to be holy. And if you're a Christian now, you have been made holy in Christ. You've been set apart as a unique people belonging to him. As a sinner, you are forgiven now of your sins, but more than forgiven, because when you're forgiven, you're just really brought to a point of neutrality. Your slate is wiped clean. There's just nothing there anymore. That's necessary. That's helpful. That's not enough. 
Now you're even more than that. You're holy. You have been given a positive righteousness in the place of your negative sinfulness. And your sin that deserved only judgment and alienation by God, now the righteousness that you have received from Christ allows you to be accepted into his presence, to enjoy him and know him in your life, and have all the blessings that go with that. A positive righteousness in its place. The righteousness of Christ, so that the Bible will talk about being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So that we have verses like 2 Corinthians 5.21, Therefore he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what happens in salvation is like an exchange that takes place. He takes our unrighteousness. He becomes clothed in our sinfulness and therefore receives everything that it deserves. And then we are clothed in his righteousness instead. And we begin to receive everything that he would deserve. We are accepted in the presence of God based on Christ himself, not us. I don't know how many of you ever remember a story. I think Mark Twain wrote it. Prince and the Parp. Prince and the Pauper, okay? You know, very interesting story. Walt Disney made it in a movie, the whole thing, you know, there. But, uh, this, you know, this whole idea, they've got these twins that are born. They look exactly alike through various circumstances. One lives in the castle, and one lives out on the streets as a beggar. So the one in the, uh, the beggar on the streets, he's just got his rags, uh, lives in squalor, is kicked around, you know, he begs for food, nobody treats him with respect, they think he's disgusting, all this kind of stuff, has no friends, whatever. But the prince uh, is living in the castle, and he's got people waiting on him hand and foot, and he's got the name of the king and all the rights and privileges that go with that, and, and just a royal existence, you know, that kind of goes on. But one day they meet, they learn that they you know, look exactly like, and that because of the yearnings in their soul, they decide that they would like to switch places. So what do they do? They switch clothes. And one takes on the rags of the, of the pauper. The other takes on the robes of the prince. And they switch places, and they each experience what the other was experiencing without, you know, ruining the ending for you or anything like that uh, kind of thing. The whole point here is that they haven't changed in terms of who they are as people per se. But their whole status changes. How they're treated changes. Everything changes merely because of how they are clothed. And that's what's happened in salvation. Is that Jesus has taken on our identity, so to speak. He has come to be identified That's part of what the whole incarnation is all about, why that was so important and necessary. He becomes identified in our sinful condition. We become identified with his perfect righteousness. And now, because we are in Christ, we are regarded as holy. And that means you are completely, you belong to Christ now. You belong to God. You have access into his presence. And you are secure in your salvation because it's not a righteousness that you acquired on your own in the first place. So as a believer, now you begin to realize, I have got some real solid foundations to my faith. I am chosen by God, and I have made, been made holy by God, not through anything I've done. And again, what does this produce in us? Not pride, but again, deep humility and thanks, and a real desire now to live holy lives. We begin to live in a manner consistent with who we now are in Christ.
And if that were not enough, he also wants you to know that you are deeply loved. And if there was one thing I would wish to get across to people is how deeply and personally and passionately you are loved by God because of Jesus and because he's wiped away your sins. He's made you righteous in his sight and he crowns you with a crown and he loves you and he dances over you with a love that you, maybe if, if you're a father, then you have some ability to understand what it means to love someone like you do your own child. Well, God dances over you even more than that. I still can remember walking into when Elizabeth was born and walking into a room and for years I'd just go on in and I would begin to sing to her just out of joy that she was on board and she was in our life and she hadn't caused any major problems yet or anything like that. That was still in the future. You know, the tears were in the future. Now there's joy, you know, this kind of thing. And so I'd come in and I'd pick her up and we'd kind of dance around the room a little bit. There was just this unbridled joy of having her until, well, one day, you know, when I started to sing and she just put her finger real quick to my lips and goes, no, don't, no, Daddy, don't sing. Uh, I don't have the best voice in the world. So from that day on, I didn't sing uh, to her that much. But you get the idea of the, of the father's heart for his children. And, you know, you guys are men and you're... Most of you are adults, and you're, some of you are older in life now. And you don't tend to think of yourself as the one that God dances around. You don't think of yourself that way anymore, but that's how he looks to you. One of my favorite passages in a, is in the prophet Zephaniah. And half of you are going, what? Zephi who? Well, it's a prophet named Zephaniah, one of the prophets in the Old Testament, don't even try to turn there because the time you find it will be way done. So let me just read a verse or two that's really been one of my favorites here. Verse Starting in chapter 3, verse 17. Write it down, then Google it, and you'll find it later. So the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. And he goes on. I just will stop there. It's just these pictures that we get that we don't often stop and notice when we read through. This is God's utter delight in you as his child redeemed by Christ. And if we can begin to ask God to help us to understand that, part of what we do in our, I think, in our devotion lives is, Lord, Okay, I know that the text says I'm chosen, holy, and beloved, and all that, but it's just information to me. That doesn't really register. Please help me to understand what that means and let it begin to find have its own impact in, in my life. And to the degree it does, it will transforms you. Oh, I so wish we could grasp these three things. When we do, then we're different. And we're filled with gratitude and joy. There's no longer fear. There's security. There's peace. And because of these things, of who we are in Christ, what he has done for us, we are a different people. And we are to live differently, especially in our relationships. And this is where, as I said at the beginning, what this all comes down to is what he's setting this up for is to help us understand 
that we are called to conduct ourselves in a manner consistent with the same grace that we ourselves have received. To love others with the same love that we have been loved. That's the Christian life. That's what it means to be transformed in practical ways. In other words, as God's people, we're not only to be saved by the gospel, but to continue to live by the gospel. So what does that look like? Well, just look at the second half of verse 12 as he gets into that. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, that idea of putting on then, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. These are all just marks of love. All a mark of putting people ahead of yourself. All a way of becoming like Jesus. This alone, these things right here, would change our marriages. Would change our our families. Would change the workplace. Would change our neighborhoods dramatically, let alone our nations. Just to have these kind of fruit beginning to bear fruit. And they are things that we can't produce. These are things that we have to again go to and say, okay, this is who I am. Produce these things in my life. I pray that you will make me, God, a more truly compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient person with others because these are not indigenous to me. These are not things that are going to just naturally come out. And I'll apply myself, I'll, I'll work towards it, but you need to produce them in me. They are the fruits that give evidence that we are his children that we have begun to grow into his likeness, that we are being saved. These are the fruits he produces, and you know the tree by its fruit. The fruit does not produce the tree, obviously. The tree produces its fruit. And this is the dynamic that we're understanding, trying to understand about being transformed by the gospel. So what I'm trying to get at is this. A lot of people think then that becoming Christian is to get, get religion. And to start trying hard to keep the rules and do the right things and, and start keeping the commandments and that kind of thing. And to the degree that you do, when you, you'll somehow cross the line somewhere and God will now accept you and save you or whatever. But these are things where we say we're, we're none of this stuff. So I have to go to the foot of the cross to be forgiven and to be transformed. And to, I can only do that because I'm chosen and now I've been made holy and now I am loved. And now these things are beginning to be produced. I cannot produce them in and of myself. I can't just get, try to get rid of the bad things and put on the good things uh, in my life. It just won't work that way. The example might be this. Let's say you go home, and this spring, whatever, you end up having uh, your tree, uh, an apple tree in your, your yard. And you got an apple tree, and pretty soon, you know, come by the fall, you got all these apples. But you also, you've got, uh, maybe some of you would have a lemon tree. you got a lemon tree in your yard, and pretty soon, of course, it blossoms and it puts forth lemons. And you're saying, you know, I don't want a lemon tree. I don't like lemons. My neighbor has got an apple tree. Now, that's a fruit tree. I want apples. So let's say one morning you spend the whole morning pulling the lemons off of your branches and throwing them away. And then you go off to your neighbor and you pull all the apples off. Or maybe you just say, no, I won't do that. I'm just going to go buy bushels and bushels of apples. And then you spend the rest of the afternoon tying apples onto the branches of your tree. And then you step back, you know, at the end of the day, it's Miller time, this sort of thing. You step back and you say, there it is. Finally got my apple tree. 
wasn't that hard. One day, got an apple tree. Is that an apple tree? What's going to happen to the apples? They're going to rot and fall off unless you eat real fast. But the fact of the matter is, come next spring, what's going to happen? Lemons, they're coming. Because why? It's a lemon tree. That's what lemon trees produce. So often, I think what Christians try to do is they work really hard at yanking off all the lemons in their life, trying to somehow attach the good things to their lives, but because they are not being produced from within by the Holy Spirit, in dependence upon Him as we seek Him in prayer and apply themselves, what happens is we see limited, temporary, superficial changes in our lives that don't really end up going anywhere. And we get frustrated and discouraged and we give up and this sort of thing as opposed to saying this is going to take a while but pretty soon we're going to see this tree grow and pretty soon it's going to put forth fruit and some of our trees may be further along than others and some of our trees may produce more than others this sort of thing but bottom line the only way i'm going to produce christian fruit is if i'm a christian you see but there's a lot of other people who are trying to reform their lives on the outside without seeing the change that's really happening on the inside. These are some of the things that you will begin to see produced as you pursue them in prayer before God. They're the fruits that become the evidence that you're his child. They're not what makes you his child. But that's not all God wants to produce, because as we go on, we see one of the things that really catches my attention, which is the whole idea of forbearing. Verse 13, forbear with one another. Very quick, forbear with one another. What is that? Why is that there? It must really mean that the assumption is, is that in the Christian community and in my family and in my neighborhood, there are going to be people who really irritate me. That there are going to be people that I really irritate that we're going to often find that it's difficult to get along with one another, even if we are redeemed believers. So it's being, being patient with each other, enduring each other, putting up with each other. And that's important because apparently we're still going to live in a world, even in a Christian community, where we're offending each other, hurting each other, letting each other down, certainly not measuring up to expectations, and all these other sorts of things. Sometimes in the Christian community, we're actually going to have different opinions about things. We're going to have different convictions about things. We're not always going to agree on doctrinal issues of some, of some kinds or interpretations of various texts. And we're going to have to learn to be gracious and charitable to one another as we work through these things. Sometimes it's differences in personalities and backgrounds. We're just really different, and not all personalities get along well with each other. And yet we're thrown together in churches because we're like families. You know, you don't get to choose your family. You just take who you get. So you didn't choose who you were, were here today, for example. You just got to take what you get, just like in a family. So that means that some odd couples are often thrown together. And you look at the disciples. What a motley crew. This is not a group I would have chosen to plant a church with. Not at all. You got Peter, this he's a great leader, but he often speaks loud and unwisely and gets puts his foot in his mouth and often creates more problems than he solves. You got Andrew, who's apparently a very quiet and simple guy, probably because of Peter uh, in, in his life, kind of thing. Then you got Thomas, who's this intellectual. 
He's educated and inquisitive and full of doubts, apparently. This sort of thing. You got Matthew, who is a corrupt government official. You got Simon the Zealot, who's at the opposite end of the spectrum than Matthew. Simon the Zealot would be part of the Zealot party dedicated to killing Matthew. Things like that. And it goes on and on, That right on down. You look at this incredibly motley crew, all the way from what you might call the John Birch Society to the ACLU is thrown in. Everything from Bears fans to Packers fans or whatever you've got, these guys are thrown in. And Jesus is saying, you're the ones I'm going to build my church on. And if you've got any sense of looking at these guys, you're looking like going, really? What can you possibly accomplish with this mess? Well, the fact that we're sitting in this room today is evidence of what the power of the gospel can do when we learn to maybe forbear with one another. So we have different backgrounds, different personalities, different opinions, different convictions, all sorts of ways in which we're going to hurt and offend and irritate one another. And it means that, therefore, we're not only going to have to learn how to forbear with one another, but even more, we're going to have to learn to forgive in our lives. Forbear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I don't know that there's much more that has created more problems in our lives and in our world than the utter lack of forgiveness. It goes on for generations between people groups, nations, individuals. Hatred that we hold in our hearts. The grudges we cannot let go of. Things that lead to alienation and hostility in homes, communities, everywhere. The breakdown of relationships and the need and the hunger for forgiveness being so great. read a story not long ago, very recently as a matter of fact, in Mexico City. Apparently there was a Father and his son, Pablo, who had had a breakdown, said some things, angry with each other. The son ran off, and he hadn't seen him for a long time, didn't know where he was, almost like a prodigal son story. So the father took out an ad in the paper and said, Pablo, I forgive you. I love you. Meet me at this particular location. When the father showed up at the location, there were over 500 Pablos waiting all hungry to experience a father's forgiveness. That's just a small illustration of how how important this is in every context of our lives. We are to forgive as Jesus has forgiven us. And that's what the Lord's Prayer anchors us in. Father, forgive us our debts or trespasses, whatever you use. Forgive us of our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. Do you realize what we're praying in that prayer? It's pretty stunning when you think about it. And that's why some say that those who refuse to forgive are burning the very bridge over which they themselves must cross. And a lot of us have been doing that in our lives and expecting us to grow spiritually, expecting us to have a vibrant walk with God, expecting to see Him at work in our lives when we are holding grudges, against our wife, against our kids, for the way they've let us down, the things that they've said, all that. 
as one other person has said, refusing to forgive is like drinking the poison and expecting the other person to die. But Romans 5.8 tells us that God did not show, didn't wait for us to get our act together, didn't wait for us, well, he offended me. They're the ones who rebelled. I'll wait for them to come to me, and then I'll forgive them. God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took the initiative. He made the first move. He paid the price. He absorbed the cost. And the only reason it's free grace for us today is because he picked up the tab. My father was so happy, just another one of his sayings, what's under the hood that counts? Yeah, I got that. The other, the other thing that he wanted to say all the time was, I'd say something at a store or whatever, and I'd, I'd want to get it because, Dad, it's free. You know, it says it's free. Why can't I have it? He says, and his other favorite phrase was, nothing's free. Nothing in this life is free. It only means somebody else picked up the tab. And that's what it is with grace. It's only free grace for you because Jesus picked up the tab. And he's the one who made the move. He paid the price, all of this sort of thing. He didn't wait for you to get your act together, for you to be obedient, to be faithful, or anything else. He pursued forgiveness with us. He effected reconciliation. And that's what we need to do as well. And so many passages in the scriptures emphasize this whole thing, that if we hold on to our grudges and refuse to forgive others, well, then God's going to treat us exactly the same way. And that is an eternally significant statement to make. Because what does it say about our hearts? Willing to be forgiven and not to forgive? Willing to embrace grace and not be gracious? Willing to have, ask everybody else to cut us some slack and not cutting our own? Willing to give others, asking others to give us the benefit of the doubt and please understand us and not doing the same for them? All those sorts of things? It cannot be. It just cannot be. And I don't need to go into much elaboration about forgiveness, but forgiveness, because you know what we're talking about, but I will say that forgiveness means absorbing the cost to yourself. The pain the loss, or whatever. It means I am willing to pay that price. Just as Jesus bore my sin, I will bear the weight of it here. And I will not hold it against you anymore. It will not get in the way of our relationship because I'm going to bear whatever the cost is. How can I do that? I can only do it to the degree that I understand that that's exactly what God has done for me in Jesus. Now we could go on with these other things that I'm not going to take the time to do that now. Above all else, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ, let it rule in your heart in ditch, to which you were called as one body of believers and be a thankful person. Let God's word Dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. And sing songs of praise to God with thankfulness in your hearts. And just to tie it all up, because it's like, how much more can we, you just go on and on and on. And so whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Everything in his name. 
Every action that you take, every word that you utter, when you pick up the phone, when you respond to your child, when you do whatever you're going to do, do whatever you do, everything, your work, your business, your ethics, your neighbors, everything, whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is really just a, a remarkable and beautiful portrait of what the new life looks like in a fallen world. If, of how we can begin to know if I, my life has been touched, how I can begin to know if my heart has been changed, how I can begin to know if I really belong to Jesus here. When I begin to see these kind of fruits blossoming forth, when I, become, when I even care that they're going to be produced in my life, and I pursue these things in prayer before God, because again, I, I can't just simply go out and produce them. That, that's just not going to happen. I cannot simply produce these things by willpower. But I can as I continually practice the gospel in my life, as I confess my lack of these things, as I, as I pursue them before God, say, but I want these things. Change my heart. Let them become increasingly evident in my life so that you're glorified in my life. Other people are blessed through my life, and my own joy in the process will be made complete. As you are able to do this sort of thing and experience it and see that happening, your own joy will indeed grow and grow. You'll become more and more like Jesus Christ himself until such time as we all are able to dance around the throne together 